This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. Today we are looking at verses 14 through 25. Matthew 26, 14 through 25. We are continuing in a series of studies in Matthew's Gospel. Begin our reading in verse 14. Hear the word of God. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment... He sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to one another, to, to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It is truth and Father, we pray that as we study it, that it would indeed examine the thoughts of our hearts, the actions of our lives, the words on our tongue. Father, we pray that you would use your word to feed our souls and to equip us as followers of Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. We are in a section of Matthew's Gospel that is preparing the way for the cross. As we've seen the last couple of weeks, uh, these passages are anticipating Jesus' death. Back to uh, Jesus' statement in 26, 1 and 2. After two days, the Passover is coming. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then... A different scene, that of the chief priests and the elders of the people who've gathered in order to plot Jesus' arrest and death, something they wanted to do stealthily, uh, not during the feast, not with all of these people in Jerusalem. They wanted it to be something quiet, something that wouldn't stir up a 
potential riot. And then as we saw last time, Mary anointing Jesus' body with very expensive oil. And Jesus said, she has done this to prepare my body for burial. So passage after passage indicates that Jesus' death is near. Well, this is another such passage, setting the stage for the arrest and crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. This passage has to do with Judas Iscariot. It has to do with Jesus' betrayal by one of his own. And so let's look this morning at verses 14 through 25. If we could divide this passage up, it really falls into two parts. Judas' action uh, in verses 14 through 16, and then Jesus' prediction in the remaining verses, 17 through 25. First, then, let's look at Judas' action, verses 14 through 16. One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him out 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. It's interesting, if you look at lists of the disciples, Peter is first. And the others may come in different orders, except Judas is always last. Of course, that was written in hindsight. Uh, He was one of the twelve. And yet he wasn't one of the twelve. Well, as we look at this passage here, it gives us a sense of, of, of outrage over what he did. As Matthew wrote the gospel and the other gospels wrote, they're writing looking back on it. And it's interesting to see how they treat Judas. But this treachery of Judas is, is aggravated by his closeness to Jesus. Then one of the twelve, it is a matter of fact, Is there also a little bit of a note of irony in there that this is one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of the twelve? You see, this was a man who was very close to Jesus, one of that inner circle of the twelve, and one who had been with Jesus, someone who had a front row seat hearing Jesus teaching, not just to the crowds, but in private with his disciples. Someone who had been up close eyewitness to the miracles that Jesus did, those powerful works of of healing the blind and enabling the lame to walk and even raising the dead. He, in fact, was one of those twelve earlier in this gospel whom Jesus sent out to preach the good news of the kingdom and to heal the sick. Even to raise the dead. And it doesn't say they went and did that except Judas. Judas is something of a strange case. His very closeness to Jesus and had been with Jesus for these three years aggravates the, 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 the outrage over this treachery. But also his, that it's his initiative aggravates what Judas did. Notice it wasn't as though some of the chief priests were looking for an opportunity. Maybe they could turn one of Jesus' disciples. Maybe they could entice one of the weaker ones to... Um, be a spy for them, and eventually to be a turncoat and betray Jesus. That's not what happened. Judas took the initiative. Judas went to the chief priest himself and said, what will you give me? Judas was the one who offers a deal. Went to the chief priests himself. We take it for granted that Judas betrayed Jesus, but did you ever wonder why? 
Why would Judas do something like this? Well, there are all kinds of speculations as to his motives. One was that he was disillusioned, that Judas was looking for something a little more aggressive militarily, politically against the Romans than what Jesus was offering. And as time went by, maybe Judas was hoping something would develop, hoping something would develop. But as Jesus proved more and more to be a man of peace, not a man of the sword, not one to lead a revolution against Rome, perhaps he became disillusioned and decided to hand Jesus over and let that be that. Or perhaps he was hoping to force Jesus to act. really on Jesus' side, but if he could just get Jesus in a situation where he's in danger, then he would have to act. Then he would have to fight. Then the revolution could begin. It's possible. It's also possible that uh, Judas uh, really saw what Jesus was about, but decided this whole venture was doomed to failure and decided the best way to get out was to betray Jesus and at least save his own hide much as it was said by one of the founding fathers, we must hang together or we shall hang separately. Well, Judas didn't want to hang. He saw, as he saw it, perhaps this going going down the drain. This was going to fail, and he didn't want to be one of those who was hanged for his involvement with Jesus, so he decided to turn him over. Maybe. The fact is the Bible doesn't address any of those. Those are all speculative. One thing that the Bible does seem to indicate that could have been, if not the motive, then at least a motive for Judas. And that was greed. We've already seen last week that Judas had a problem with money. They offered to pay him 30 pieces of silver, which was a reference back to Zechariah. Uh, and at that time was, was a small amount of money, just the price of a slave. And even in Jesus' day, it's not a huge amount of money. We've already seen that Judas had a problem with money. Uh, It was Judas, particularly, who questioned Mary's anointing Jesus with that expensive oil. He said, why was this ointment not sold and the money given to the poor? John, in John 12, comments. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. He'd been stealing out of the money bag all along and maybe denied the opportunity for gain in that oil, maybe stinging a little bit from Jesus' rebuke, a little bit irritated with Jesus. He saw an opportunity to make some quick cash here. And so he goes to the leadership of the Jews and says, what will you give me if I pay him? The only thing the Bible actually hints at, at a motive, was money, was greed. Maybe the other things came into play, we just don't know. But money was definitely involved. So that's Judas' action. He, he himself, a close follower of Jesus, goes to the chief priests and offers to cut a deal with them for money, and he would hand Jesus over to them. Well, then that brings us in the second part of the verse, in the larger or chap, a passage, the larger part of the passage, verses 17 through 25, Jesus' prediction. Now, first, we see the preparation. This takes place at the Passover, and the first few verses have to do with preparation for the Passover. Verses 17 through 20. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Considerable preparation was involved, not just the physical arrangements, tables, uh, 
the, the, the location, the setting, and all of that, but preparation of the food itself was fairly elaborate to lay out all of the necessary uh, foods that they would have, that they would use for observing the Passover. And uh, so the disciples want to do that and get that set up. Um, you think, well, typically the Passover was celebrated with families. Do you ever wonder why Jesus and the disciples were observing Passover together rather than the disciples being with their families, uh, and Jesus even with his. Well, uh, for these Galileans, they were a long way from home. Uh, they were down in Jerusalem, and so they were away from their families, apparently, and natural that they would uh, observe the Passover together. Also, Jesus arranges for the Passover. He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Apparently, Luke tells us this was Peter and John who went, and apparently Jesus was concerned. I think this was arranged. Some say, well, there was a supernatural meeting and all of this. Possibly, but Jesus was staying at Bethany right outside Jerusalem. It would have been very easily easy for him to arrange this situation. But I think Jesus was concerned in sending a couple of disciples, Peter and John, to go and do this to keep the location secret because he knew what Judas was up to. And it was important that that location not be disclosed early. I don't think the other disciples really knew where it would be. And Jesus was protecting protecting himself, preventing premature betrayal in that way. And so they go and they make the preparations for the Passover. But before we move on, I want to point out something extremely significant in verse 18. The teacher says... My time is at hand. Now, we won't take the time to look at these various references, but if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that Jesus has said over and over, now is not my time. You know, his brothers wanted him to go uh, to the feast in Jerusalem, make himself known to the crowds. And Jesus said, for you, any time's right. This is not my time. Uh, when they tried to come and, 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 and take him earlier, uh, and that Jesus walked out through their midst because it was not his time. His time had not come. And Jesus says here, my time is at hand. The time has come for these things to begin to uh, fall into place, begin to happen, and for his death to occur. But then that takes us to the Passover meal. And, and Matthew really skips everything having to do with Passover itself, except for a little bit. Lord willing, we'll look at next time. And focuses in on this announcement, this prediction of Jesus. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Apparently in the Old Testament, they would sit at the table. Judges has a reference to sitting at a table. But by this time, they had pretty much adopted the uh, Greek and Roman custom of reclining at the table. Children, do not try this at home. Uh, of, of, of basically leaning on one elbow, usually the left elbow, and then eating with the right hand. And that describes a situation where they were. And as they were eating, Jesus says in verse 21, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And, and you can immediately hear any conversation stop, you know, hands in midair, uh, reaching for food or taking food. As it it they hear what Jesus said, truly I say to you, emphasizing the solemnity, the seriousness of this, one of you, one of you will betray me. He would be betrayed, and it would be someone in that group, someone in that room. 
And you see their their reaction in verse 22. They're extremely sad. They're distressed by this. But it's a curious question, don't you think, that they ask? They begin to say one after another, Lord, is it I? Am I going to betray? Maybe they thought it was somehow involuntary. One of them would slip up. One of them would do something silly or wrong or, or just not thinking. But it's interesting that they each begin to question themselves. Each questions his own heart. Lord, is it I? Am I going to be the one to do this? It's worth noticing that not a one of them says, well, Lord, is it Judas? Apparently Judas had covered his tracks pretty well. They all were questioning themselves, which, by the way, I think indicates a great deal of health spiritually on their parts, except for Judas, obviously, uh, that they would immediately begin, begin to question themselves. But it's interesting. They don't suspect Judas. They question themselves. Now, Jesus has given them this statement about the betrayal. Now he gives them a statement about the betrayer. Look at verse 23. Jesus said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Ah, so we know, right? No, we don't, because they'd all pretty much been. Basically, Jesus says, again, it's someone in this room, someone who is who is here with me. And by the way, I think is an echo there of Psalm 41, verse 9, which we read earlier. Maybe you caught that, that reference in Psalm 41, 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread, who ate at the table with me, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, Psalm 41, he's describing the agony of someone, a close friend, someone who had table fellowship with, who betrays him. Well, that happened not just to the psalmist, but foreshadows what happened with Jesus. Someone close, someone he ate with, someone who is near to him, a friend, would betray him. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying in verse 23, was dipped his hand in the dish with me. Someone I enjoy table fellowship with, someone who's a close friend, I consider a close friend, he will betray me. His nearness, he's a close friend, he speaks of his doom. Look at verse 24. The Son of Man goes, as it's written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Notice here something significant. Jesus was not at the mercy of the scheming of the chief priests. Jesus' death was the will of his Father. And Jesus would go just as the Scriptures prophesied. Now, he doesn't refer to anyone in particular, any one passage of Scripture, as it's written of him. But we might think of something like Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53 that that speak of the death of the suffering servant, that speak in detail of his crucifixion. So Jesus is making a point here that ultimately what happens is not the outcome of his enemies plotting against him, but the will of his father, the purpose, the plan of his father, the purpose of Jesus all along. Jesus was never at their mercy, so to speak. He ultimately was in charge all along. The divine sovereignty is there, but there's also certainly the human responsibility. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man had betrayed, it would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Wow. Imagine Jesus saying that about you. It would have been better if you'd never been born because of what you are going to endure for what you've done. And you know, that's true for every one of us, apart from the saving grace of God 
in Christ. But the fact that this was the Father's purpose, the fact that this was prophesied in the Old Testament, by no means reduces or erases the guilt Judas Iscariot brought on himself by this act of treachery. In fact, Jesus, in his prayer in John 17, says, I've lost none of those you've given to me except the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Judas, the one whom the Father had purposed from all eternity to be that one who would betray Jesus. And yet that does not remove his responsibility. Paul takes up that argument in Romans 9. Who can say to God, you know, why can you blame me? Who can, who can resist his will? You know, Judas could say, well, God determined this. How could I do otherwise? No, no, no. You see, God may be sovereign, but that does not reduce your responsibility for your actions, nor does it remove Judas's. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. And so you see here in all of this playing out, as in everything in our lives today, both the sovereign will of God, and the responsibility that people have, that we have, in decisions and choices that we make. And once again, you have reaction here. This time, not that of the disciples as a whole, but that of Judas himself. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Notice a couple of things. One, Judas probably had to say this too, because he didn't want to stand out, as these other disciples were saying, Lord, is it I? Notice the other thing. Jesus, I mean, uh, Judas does not say, is it I, Lord? As it says back in verse 22, is it I, Lord? He said, is it I, Rabbi? You see, he can't quite bring himself to call him Lord. He calls him teacher. He doesn't call him Lord, doesn't call him master. He calls him teacher. Just a detail, but knowing what we know, uh, a significant detail. Is it I, Rabbi? But even more curious than that is Jesus' reply to him. Jesus said to him, you have said so. Oh, well, it's clear now. Everybody knows, right? Well, no, because Jesus' answer is somewhat ambiguous. It's, it's a little bit like saying, if you say so. In fact, this is the exact same answer that he gives before Pilate in 2711, where he says, are, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. Same answer, because he understood that Pilate by saying, are you the king of the Jews, had something different in mind than what Jesus had in mind. Yes, he was a king, but not the kind Pilate was thinking of. And so Jesus' answer is kind of a, an affirmative, but not fully. It's saying, well, if, you, if that's what you want to say, or if that's what you would like to think, something like that. Uh, not quite a denial, but not really a, a, an absolute affirmative either. And that's what we have here. You have said so, or you say so yourself. Something like that. So it's somewhat of an ambiguous answer. But the other disciples apparently don't immediately point at Judas. In fact, John tells us that, that Judas went out. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas realized at this point he was exposed. Feast or no feast, he had to act soon or he wouldn't have opportunity to act. And Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. And Judas leaves. And the other disciples think that maybe he's gone out to purchase more supplies or to go out and give money to the poor. They don't really grasp what's going on or understand why Judas left and left quickly. They thought maybe he was going out to do something good. So you see, Jesus' answer does not give him away, Judas, away to the other disciples. But it is enough to let Judas know Jesus is on to him. Jesus knows what he's about. 
And Judas leaves quickly to go out and do what he had plotted and had been paid to do. Strange case of Judas Iscariot. What do we learn from Judas? I want us to think briefly about three lessons, three things we can learn uh, from Judas Iscariot. First of all, do not trust in religious activity or even leadership as a gauge of your spiritual maturity or even your conversion. Judas was a leader. Judas was part of Jesus' inner circle. Judas went out and preached about Jesus. Apparently, by the power of the Spirit, Judas did miracles. He was part of the twelve that Jesus sent out. He is not accepted from those uh, things that Jesus sent them out to do. That's not a gauge of your spiritual maturity or even leadership or even uh, conversion. If you are a leader in the church, we certainly hope that is the case, but it doesn't guarantee it. If you teach Sunday school, we would hope that is the case, but it doesn't guarantee it. You don't rest on those things in terms of your standing before God. What's a better gauge? Let me suggest to you this. A better gauge of your spiritual maturity and even your conversion is how you live when you're by yourself. The things that you do when no one is watching. Because then you're not playing to people. You're living before the Lord. You're obeying the Lord because you love him and not because you're trying to keep or gain or maintain approval with people. Judas was a leader. Judas was seen as one of Jesus' close followers. Judas was involved in Jesus' ministry. Judas was a son of perdition from the beginning. As John would say later, he went out from us, but he was not of us. Second, do not tolerate baby sins. They can grow up to be big sins. Go from the tragic to uh, the slightly absurd. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the VeggieTales video. Uh, Larry Boy and the Fib from Outer Space, you know, where, where Junior Asparagus breaks an Art Bugatti plate of his fathers, and he lies. And he he winds up with this cute little ball, the fib. I'll always be your little fib. Well, of course, one lie begets another lie begets another lie. And as he keeps telling lies, the fib is getting bigger and bigger. And before long, it's taking over Bumbleberg. Well, the truth is there. Little sins can grow to become big sins. Judas had a problem with greed that I imagine at one point was much smaller, much more seemingly innocent. But the time to deal with that sin would have been when it's much smaller. But it had grown, and it had gotten bigger, and his lust for money had gotten more powerful to the point where he was willing to sell out the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Do not let your sin grow to the point that it destroys you. You know, Bernie Madoff didn't become Bernie Madoff with his huge pyramid scheme overnight. It started much, much, much earlier in his life. Don't let little sins grow up to be big sins. And third, maintain a healthy skepticism of your own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately sick. Some translations, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? You need to be careful about your own heart about how you explain things to yourself, how you rationalize things like little sins to yourself. Always examine your heart by the light of God's Word. Always examine your heart, perhaps with the accountability of another human being 
I can provide a check. I can provide uh, a more objective evaluation of your motives or your intentions or the things that you were doing. I suspect, don't know this for sure, but I suspect Judas Iscariot was something of a loner. Even among the twelve, I suspect he kept his counsel close, that he didn't open up much to these other men, men who would become pillars of the church. Could you imagine a greater group of men be around for accountability and discipleship than the apostles? Judas not only had ministry of Jesus, he had the friendship of these men who would become the pillars of the New Testament church. But I suspect he did not take advantage of that opportunity to open his heart to them. Maintain a healthy skepticism of your own heart. Praise God for the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of his working there. But remember that residual fallen sinful nature is there and your heart can play tricks with you. So be on guard. Judas Iscariot, on the one hand, was the instrument God used to bring about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But humanly speaking, Judas Iscariot was an absolute tragedy. And from him, we should all be warned. Let's pray. Father, we are warned. We are chastened by this passage. And we pray for your grace to protect us from ourselves. Father, we pray that our love for you, our devotion, would not just be an outward thing, but would be the true and genuine desire of our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.